Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, it's a weekend filled with love across Canada with Valentine's Day for all and Family Day for many, so I hope you're all basking in the warm glow of affection from lovers and family this chilly February weekend. I'm here, of course, to bring you love in this show via great interviews with women that will warm your heart and inspire your soul, starting with Janelle Benjamin, the founder and chief equity officer of All Things Equitable, Inc., a company she founded after suffering her own mistreatment in the workplace and by the tragic murder of George Floyd. This perfect storm of personal and social injustice propelled Janelle to find her fire and redirect her energies to help others and affect systemic change. The heart is the focus this month when it comes to love and to health. Heart month is here, and while many of us think of diet and exercise when it comes to heart health, you could find clues to your heart in your smile. Anita Deddy from Dental X shares what you should be looking for while taking care of your mouth. Anne Brody is back with a sweet and fluffy movie on Netflix called To All the Boys, Always and Forever. Plus more to help celebrate Black History Month with Judas and the Black Messiah, based on Black Panther Fred Hampton, who was murdered by law enforcement in the organization's early days. She also has rave reviews for A Day in the Life on YouTube. The Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in the last year, has ignited a commitment and desire for Canadians to learn more about how history has brought us to this point so that we can forge a new and better path forward. And let's be honest, it's clear we have not been getting the whole story and sometimes not even part of the story from our history books. Cheryl Thompson, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, dives into the history of Uncle Tom in her latest book called Uncle, Race, Nostalgia, and the Politics of Loyalty, which hits shelves February 16th and should be on everyone's reading list. Cat Code, my go-to for everything to do with privacy online, joins me to discuss de-identification. Never heard of it? Me either. And yet, if you own a business or work for one that collects information from people, then you'll want to know exactly what de-identification is and why it's so important for your customers that you do. Finally, Valentine's Day can be challenging if you're single, but Natalia Juarez wants to change that. Natalia helps men and women through the entire spectrum of breakups or divorce, helping them recover, initiate a separation, win an ex back, and find new love. She joins me to share how you can take an empowered, proactive approach to your love life. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Often in life, it's the biggest disappointments that lead us to find our fire. My next guest is a case study in turning rejection into redirection. Janelle Benjamin is the founder and chief equity officer of All Things Equitable, Inc., a company she founded after suffering her own mistreatment in the workplace. Janelle decided it was time to help others and affect systemic change. She joins me today to share her story with us and give details on how she is driven to make workplaces more diverse, inclusive, and safe. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Thank you, Candice. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So tell me, when did you start All Things Equitable? 
For me, it started, I would say, right immediately after George Floyd was killed and um, Amy Cooper uh, was, you know, feigning an attack in Central Park. I decided enough is enough. I've got to do something uh, to contribute to this, this movement. Um, I just really felt the impetus to do something at the time. And so I started to put things in place to, to build the business from there on. I decided I wasn't going to work for anybody again. So you also had, though, um, a, a, an incident happen with applying for a job, correct? Yes, that was pretty close to the George Floyd um, incident. It was just about maybe two months prior um, in March of uh, 2020, in which I had a, a job offer after being unemployed, um, you know, suffering that job loss, finding another feeling really great about where I was about to land. Um, and then the offer was rescinded. So um, I, I, I spiraled kind of into a bit of a depression until the George Floyd. And then it was it was off to the races after that. And why do you feel the offer was rescinded? I, I, I read about this. So I'd like you to share a little bit with my audience, if you might. Sure. So the Globe story, the Globe and Mail story that you're referring to, um, in which I was one of three women profiled nationally um, in a gender equity story, um, was really um, meaningful for me to be contributing to because it really, it allowed me to share my experience and feel validated, right? Um, so what happened to me was that um, I, I mentioned I had a job offer. I was in the process of negotiating um, the terms of, of the start date, the salary, um, you know, the benefits and all of that, the compensation package. Um, it was still about $40,000 below my previous salary. So I wasn't going there for the salary um, and I was negotiating within the range. So um, it was very close to home. I was perceiving work-life balance, all was gonna be well. And uh, through the process of negotiations, I revealed uh, that I had, of course, a family um, and that you know I was asking for certain probationary periods to be waived um, so that I could... Uh, I could have the benefits start sooner rather than at the three month mark. And then I was asking for a slight bump up from the bottom of the range. Um, and it was going to be considered the director or the senior director at this organization did note um, that she would review her budget lines and get back to me about, um, uh, you know, the slight bump up. And that if I was a rock star, she said, um, in three months, we would get me to the top of the range. I saw great, I got off the phone. Um, there was a stakeholder consultation meeting that I was getting set to attend. And uh, I had made childcare arrangements and all of that. And um, I guess she spoke to whomever in HR, men, the CEO, whomever, and, and the offer was rescinded. I got an email notification. Instead of an email notification letting me know, you know, you know that it was approved I got an offer a uh, not notice rescinding the offer um and I was devastated like totally floored and devastated <laughs> um as you might imagine so um yeah that was my experience it sent me into kind of a a little bit of a, a tailspin in terms of just my emotional well-being because I had never in my experience in my life experienced something so hurtful like I mean job loss hurts, rejection hurts, you, you have, you know, all these experiences throughout your life, but to have your hopes 
and dreams into a place where you think you can contribute and thrive and you're excited about the work and it's a senior level position and you really think you're going to be doing something meaningful for the community and to have that just pulled out from under you because you know certain individuals don't feel that you're worthy of what you're asking for was just so hurtful so painful. So here we are then. You have this sort of this perfect storm. You have this very personal, hurtful experience. We have Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter and mm-hmm. we have COVID. And out of this, all of this, uh, new hopes and dreams. And so you started All Things Equitable. Tell me mm-hmm. how that experience has been and how you are now helping others uh, find their voice to make workplaces better. So yeah, pivoting was was critical for me to kind of channel um, my depression and my energies to to do something using my skills to contribute to this movement. And so All Things Equitable is um, a company that is designed to help organizations uh, support the historically marginalized within the workplace, improve diversity, equity and inclusion um, for them and um, make workplaces better through a, a variety of services from systemic um, reviews, audits of, regist- of practices. It's been fantastic. I've been, the, the reception has been warm. Organizations um, are, are booking me. It's, it's all been, been really, really good. Okay, so um, you are, I think we should, we should note this then for people. You also have a law degree. So it's not like you don't know how this all works. Uh, you, you also yeah. have a law degree backing you up with this. Yeah. How have mm-hmm. you, um, been find or how have people been finding you I should say uh through COVID uh, I imagine I mean just what we know in terms of of women in particular being pushed out of the workforce uh people of color uh what how have they been finding you to work with you um how are you getting the word out so the word has been coming truly organically which is phenomenal lots and lots of referrals i've been in the inclusion arena for a very long time so um the employer that i was going to work for was a quote-unquote diversity inclusive employer right so there's challenges in in every arena whether it's a not-for-profit or for-profit um whether they're they're in this business or they're not um people are not as inclusive as they think they are and so being that i was doing this work for a very long time post law school i've worked at the ontario human rights commission i've worked at the accessibility directorate i've implemented you know fair access legislation and policies um, across uh, this province i've you know streamlined and harmonized um, labor market um, attachment across the country in a variety of professions i've really seen a lot in terms of working with organizations and so how are they finding me it's really through uh, you know the good work that i've already done the track record that i've established um, a lot of word of mouth, a lot of referrals. Um, and then of course, um, you know, my website is there at allthingsequitable.ca. They can find me there. I'm all over social media. I've got a YouTube and Instagram and, and you name it. So they're finding me all over and it's largely, largely coming through um, referral channels at this moment. Um, and then of course, you know, coming on wonderful shows like this, it doesn't hurt to, to attract a new audience. Okay. And so Let's looking a little bit further into the future now. How do you see this growing? Honestly, I'm at the point where it absolutely needs to grow and scale up. Um, I'm I'm busy, which is phenomenal in a pandemic where um, you know a lot of people are are unemployed or underemployed, and they've got skills, right? And I'm so grateful that I'm able to use mine and apply them to make workplaces better. So um, I'm doing that actively right now. Um, I'm 
you know, I'm trying to scale up. And so I'm at the point where I need to hire an assistant. I'm setting up my client experience processes. I'm making sure that um, not only I, I have the competence, of course, and skills to do what I'm doing, but I want to make sure that my clients have a, a phenomenal experience at the same time. And so in order to do that, I, I need a team around me to support me. I've got um, great people already kind of working with me. I partner with um, a variety of people to do, to do the work and to deliver the services because you can't do this, this work on your own if you're going to do it in a in a good way, right? In a comprehensive way. So it's interdisciplinary. I work with um, a team of consultants um, to collaborate, uh, brainstorm ideas, things like that. Um, and I'm just so blessed that I have some people kind of working behind the scenes, even pro bono at this time um, to, to help me uh, with data analysis or, or whatever it is that I need. So I'm really, really grateful. All right. Excellent. Well, I love this story. I'm always looking for stories of, you know, uh, triumph. Uh, and this is definitely one uh, uh, that that is uh, shining through as a great example. Uh, if people want to find you online or connect with you through social media, where can they do that? Sure. So all things equitable. It's um, a firm across the greater Toronto area, but we do work internationally. We're an incorporated entity, so we can work all over the world. Um, and they can find me at www.allthingsequitable.ca. Of course, on LinkedIn at All Things Equitable, on um, Instagram at All Things Equitable, and then I'm JB underscore Equitable on Twitter. Um, I think I'm on Facebook at all, as All Things Equitable as well. So All Things Equitable on all channels except for Twitter, which is JB underscore Equitable. And, uh, you know, we, we do try to make it easy to be equitable, and that's our, our slogan. And so, yeah, we, we hope that people will reach out and, and connect with us in order to help them make workplace improvements. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Janelle. This is great. I really appreciate you having me on Candice. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. is not only about affairs of the heart, but also the health of our hearts as we focus in on Heart Month. Heart disease and stroke kill 31,000 women in Canada annually, and there are a number of ways we can protect ourselves through diet and exercise. But something a lot of us don't know is that the health of our mouth is important and when it comes to our heart health as well. Joining me now to discuss from Dental X is Anita Deddy. Welcome back to the show, Anita. Thank you for having me. So there's not conclusive evidence that the, that there's a link, but we do know that inflammation is a sign of a lot of systemic disease in our bodies, right? Yes, it is. So um, uh, that's why, you know, like a lot of um, risk factors, um, you know, like of the many systemic diseases are the same as the risk factors of the uh, diseases in the mouth as well. So what we would be looking at in the mouth then is primarily uh, inflammation of the gums, right? Or gum disease? Yes. So we have, uh, there's two types of um, uh, gum disease. One of them is uh, inflammation of the gums, which is called gingivitis. And we have a more severely um, inflammation of the bone, which is called periodontitis. 
So both of them are um, inflammations, but one of them, gingivitis, is reversible with uh, proper oral hygiene um, and uh, going uh, to the uh, dental office. And there is the um, inflammation of the bone that is periodontitis, which is not reversible, but at least we can maintain it at that, uh, at that point so it doesn't go any further. So I'm curious, does, does gum disease, I know that, you know, we get bleeding gums from gum disease, but is there ever, um, you know, does it ever become painful? It definitely does, because um, especially when, it, uh, when gingivitis is just uncomfortable feeling, and that's when, when you see uh, bleeding gums or you see, um, you know, like very like a bad taste or a bad smell, but when it comes to the point that it becomes painful, that means that uh, it has gone much further, much further than the gums and it has gone to the bone when the teeth become starting loose and then when the pain starts and the people see um, bigger problems than uh, just, you know, like little things that you can fix. So we obviously don't want to get to that point. So let's start at the beginning then with just your basic gingivitis. <laughs> how are we going to, uh, you know, uh, how do we prevent that? And how do we turn the clock back? So gingivitis is very easy to prevent is um, by a good oral hygiene at home, by brushing and flossing um, and uh, having regular dental hygiene appointments um, at the dental office. Um, so very, very easy to fix. Brush, you know, twice a day, floss at least once a day and see your uh, dental professional every three, four or six months. It depends on the, on the person and it depends on what the dental professional tells you. Yeah. And then so for peri, uh, when we get to, sorry, I'm, it's a big word for me. Thank you. Or peri disease, which is easier. So what are the treatments for that? Because that sounds much more advanced and probably more costly and uh, a little bit more involved. Yes, so periodontitis, unfortunately, there is uh, the only treatment you can have is uh, bone grafting, um, which is, uh, you know, painful, very expensive uh, treatment. But um, at least to maintain it, again, um, you have to make sure you have good oral hygiene um, and also proper dental appointments. And sometimes you also um, have to see a specialist, which is a periodontist um, that you have to see. And they, they let you know what kind of treatments you need to see that are a lot more extensive kinds of treatments and more expensive for sure. Okay. And so what are some of the things we can do then to you know, prevent this from happening at all uh, when it comes to lifestyle? So lifestyle, you know, things we can do is uh, for sure to quit smoking, which is one of the things that we can do, is uh, to have um, a very balanced diet, uh, which is a, a very good thing to do. We have to stay active. Um, and also um, we have to kind of control um, and do, you know, like good oral hygiene um, and uh, see the dental professional, which is very, very important. Yeah. So, you know, as we're thinking about handing out chocolates to our loved ones uh, this month, maybe we want to think about something else to give them that's not going to be so harmful to our teeth, right? For sure. For sure. Although I have heard you say chocolate is okay. Chocolate is okay compared to the other uh, sweets, but, um, you know, like vegetables, um, you know, like maybe sugarless candy and sugarless gum uh, would be okay. And um, lots of water and uh for sure, you know, fruits and vegetables are the most important thing and uh, exercise. So very important to have exercise. Okay, excellent. So Anita, if people want to get in touch with you um, and reach out to you, where can they find you? So they can uh, find us on uh, our website, uh, dentalex.ca. Um, and also they can uh, find us on our social media, Facebook at Dentalex, uh, Instagram dentalex.ca, uh, Twitter is at dentalexsmiles.ca. 
Wonderful. Look forward to having you back again soon. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Day weekend, and where are we going to be spending date night? On the couch, I suspect, watching movies. What else would we do in a year where COVID is ruling again? Of course, Ann Brody's here, though, and she has a lot of entertainment to keep us busy as we're snuggled up with our loved one. Ann, what do you got for us this week? I've got a snuggly little film, as a matter of fact. It's the third installment of uh, To All the Boys. It's called Always and Forever, starring Lana Condor. All the kids know it. It's young adult. And it's, you know, it's not a great movie. It's it's not deep, but it's fluffy and sweet. So it's okay. And it's perfect for Valentine's. You just turn your brain off and watch this charming Lana Condor do her thing. So she plays a girl who is... Um, just, who's just graduated from high school uh, along with her friends and she has to decide where to go to college. Her long-term boyfriend wants her to go to Stanford with her, but she doesn't get accepted. She gets accepted into Berkeley, uh, which isn't far. But then there's a lot of complications come out. But also there's her good friend, um, uh, oh, Sam, what's her name? Everyone's Sam these days. Anyway, I forget her name, who's a Canadian girl. The whole thing was shot in Vancouver and for, you know, it's, it's, it has its purpose, this film. And I know a lot of my friends' kids love it. So the whole series. Never mind the kids. I love these light and fluffy movies. So I'm all in on this. Yeah. So you've got some heavier yeah. stuff for us, though, this weekend, for sure. Uh, continuing with Black History Month, uh, you've got something we can't miss. So what's that called? Yeah, um, that's Judas and the Black Messiah from Jacques King. And it's a true story of what became of Fred Hampton, the original chairman of the Black Panther Party in, in Illinois. Now, he's not as well known as other Black Panthers like Sophie Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, Angela Davis, because he died so early. Um, and Lakeith, uh, he's played by Daniel Kaluuya. And uh, Lakeith Stanfield comes in. He plays William O'Neill who was a Panther who was tapped by the FBI to spy on Hampton, um, gather information, and who ultimately murdered him in a massacre at, at the safe house. Just a disgusting chapter in American history. Um, but I must say that uh, both men put in very good performances. And Lakeith Stanfield said that he did not feel comfortable playing the traitor, but he did. And he, he sort of nurse those feelings throughout the shoot but it's important to see what happened okay. and it's good yeah and sorry where was and, that again ian uh that is on tvod okay uh listen i know it's not romance but i have a long-standing crush on colin firth so tell me about this <laughs> yes indeed he and stanley tucci play lovers making a road trip across england and it becomes clear maybe a third of the way in that Stanley Tucci's character has early dementia. And it's it's very sad to behold. Um, he tries and tries to 
to be with, to be present with the friends that they're visiting for allegedly the last road trip they'll ever take. Um, it's absolutely heart-wrenching, but it's not played for sentiment. And Tucci is, is just brilliant. And Colin Firth is his very caring lover. Um, and a number of, uh, number of episodes are so beautifully handled in this sad, sad story. I think it's, uh, it's worth seeing just for the love between these two men and the extra caring from Colin Firth. Um, but Stanley Tucci walks away with this. All right. It's pretty good. I, and you, listen, I, you, you were mentioning there's one that's coming out called A Day in the Life that you just are absolutely obsessed with. So tell us. Oh, my God. That. I just stumbled over it last night. Uh, yes, YouTube uh, financed and produced a film with Ridley Scott um, on July 25th, 2020. Almost a half a million people shot and submitted films of what they were doing that day. It covers everything. There are women giving birth. There are people trying to subsist in deserts and in uh, snow and, you know, food production, food, food distribution, cooking, um, lovers, married people, um, protests. <laughs> it's quite astounding. What a piece of work. I was only going to watch a little bit because it, it's an hour and a half but I could not take my eyes off it. It was absolutely riveting and I'd highly recommend it. It's on YouTube right now, Life in a Day. All right, excellent. So of course you have all kinds of movies up, including reviews of A Call to Spy and I Am Samuel on what she said, uh, talk.com. Uh, and you're gonna be back next week with more uh, great movies. And you also just posted a whole bunch of great interviews on YouTube. Oh, great. Good. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to keep our, our viewers busy and you. Excellent. Thank you, Anne. We'll see you next week. See you next week, Candace. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. The Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in the last year, has ignited a commitment and desire for Canadians to learn more about how history has brought us to this point so that we can forge a new and better path forward. And let's be honest, it's clear we have not been getting the whole story and sometimes not even part of the story from our history books. My next guest is an assistant professor at Ryerson University in the School of Creative Industries and a member of the Yates School of Graduate Studies and the Graduate Program in Communication and Culture. Dr. Cheryl Thompson is the author of Beauty in a Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture, and her latest book, Uncle, Race, Nostalgia, and the Politics of Loyalty, hits the shelves February 16th. And that's what we're discussing today. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So when did you start writing this book? Because knowing what little I know about the publishing world, I imagine it was prior to the Black Lives Matters protests of 2020. Yes. Oh, yes. Long before then. So it would have been actually 20, 2017. I contributed to a chapter to the Ward Uncovered, 
which was a Coach House Books um, publication. And specifically, my chapter was on an Uncle Tom's Cabin plate that they had found at a dig in the downtown Toronto. And so after that, I started going back to the fact that I had actually read Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book, the Harriet Beecher Stowe book back in like 2004. And then a lot of stuff just started happening between 2016 and 2018. And then so the book was actually written over 2018, 2019. And then through 2020, I had to go back into some revisions because of everything that was happening. So uh, that's what it, was, that it leads me to sort of my next question is, is did you, through the lens of the protests that happened in 2020, um, change anything in the book? Yeah, I had to. I had to change the, the, the conversation around social activism and around sort of the framing of Black martyrs, because one of the things that I do comment on in the book is the way in which George Floyd has kind of been taken up as a martyr, an unwilling martyr, and how that parallels the, the story of Uncle Tom, who was sort of a literary uh, martyr in the 19th uh, century. And then we have sort of 20th century martyrs such as you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was also a kind of civil rights activist. So I kind of tried to draw a through line between those, those moments. Okay, so let's go back to Uncle Tom for a second then, because I always understood that him as a character in a novel, and I'm totally gonna put my ignorance on full display here for everybody. Uh, I had no idea he was based on a real person. So I understood it from that perspective, but then I also had this sort of weird understanding that it was an insult to be called an Uncle Tom. So which one is it? So how do we, how do we get from the nice character to an insult? Right, and if anyone knows me, my answer is it's both. <laughs> so <laughs> the real person that it's loosely based on, like Harriet Beecher Stowe based her novel off of the life of Reverend Josiah Henson, who was an African-American who had come th to Canada through the Underground Railroad in the 19th century and founded the Dawn Settlement in Dresden, Ontario. And then throughout the 19th century, <laughs> Henson actually performed as the real Uncle Tom. So he would go on tour as the real Uncle Tom. So people started to believe that he was actually the Uncle Tom of the novel. And then they had stage plays. And then, you know, one of the first films, the first silent films that was ever done was Uncle Tom's Cabin. One of the first radio shows, the Jack Benny radio show in 1920s. The first thing they did was Uncle Tom's Cabin. So every time there was a new media iteration, they were doing Uncle Tom in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, in particular sort of the black power movement, people started to see Uncle Tom as a negative. So they would hurl that term at someone who seemed to not be militant, basically, right? They weren't aggressive enough. They weren't standing up for themselves. Instead, they were just taking their oppression. And so that's where it changed. And so now since then, to just abridge this story, you kind of have those two things commingling. Because you're going to see online, there are people who love Uncle Tom. They think Uncle Tom is a hero to this day. And then you're going to see people who use it as an insult to hurl at someone who they believe is being disloyal to Black community. And the real, the real uh, person that Uncle Tom is based on, uh, Henson, correct? Yes. He, he was a bit of a hero. Yeah, he was. And most people really don't remember this. Josiah Henson was the first Black Canadian picked to be on a postal stamp. In 1983, he is the first Black person on a commemorative stamp. So that kind of tells you a lot. Of, so, and Henson was a hero, but 
what, what I try to do in the book is to say black heroism is always complicated because he was forced to appear as Uncle Tom because he had no other means to support himself. So it was through a system of, you know, racism that basically forced him into the caricature. Otherwise, I'm sure if he had a choice, that would not have been his first choice um, in terms of employment. Right. So, so now though, so, you know, why is this story, why is this narrative so important to bring to people now? What can we, what can we pull from this now um, in our current understanding of what's going on and how can we um, use what we know now uh, to build bridges? Yeah. And, and, you know, to me, uh, when I heard um, it was, for me, it was the Kentucky state, um, um, district attorney, I believe he is, um, I might be getting that wrong, but his name is Daniel Cameron. And when he was presiding over the Breonna Taylor case, this is actually where the book really, I felt like this is why I wrote this book. After he made this decision that basically went against the family and kind of harmed the family in a way because he did all this stuff to support the state and its policies, a, a media personality in the United States called him an Uncle Tom. And I just thought, this is why I wrote the book, because that person, that name will be invoked in these really big like flashpoints in our culture. And they happen every few years. They happen when Obama was president. People called him an Uncle Tom. When uh, Dr. Ben Carson, who was part of the, the, the Trump administration, also called an Uncle Tom. And of course, we know Clarence Thomas frequently called an Uncle Tom, <laughs> even to this day. So. That's why it's relevant because, and I even say this in the book, I don't try to give a definitive answers. I just say, Uncle Tom is our collective whisper to say, hmm, maybe we should pay attention to what's going on with these individuals. Right, and so, and we saw the Trump era has really, oh, there's so much division going on and these racial stereotypes are being thrown around in ways that are almost, um, you know, I, I don't know what's worse here, that they were used sort of underhanded or that they're just totally out in the open now. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's crazy how these are being thrown around and, we, and we've lost the complete understanding of who this person was um, at the core. And he was a good, good man. And, and how this is now an insult. Yeah, I mean, and so, and also, but, you know, what I do say in the book is that Uncle Tom was a person of his time, a fictional character. Like, right. I think it's important to, to not merge Uncle Tom with, with, with Henson's life, okay. even though that's what was done. Because the truth is, Josiah Henson was a total, he was a reverend. He was a totally different character. But what it says to us, and I think what the book is trying to say is, why is it that this person is still here from the 19th century when so many other characters we don't remember? Why do we still remember this one? And I think the book kind of explains why we do. So... Now, you know, being through 2020, you've been writing this book now for a number of years, exploring this. Where do you feel we are in, in history? Are we at a tipping point now? I know this is a big question. Are we at a tipping point or do you think that the Trump era has made things much worse? Because let's face it, without the Trump era, we may not have had these flashpoints with these, with these protests and so on uh, to propel us to that. So where do you think we go from here? I'm gonna I'm gonna bail out on this question and say I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know because I don't want to make any definitive statements because the truth is the minute you think I, I feel like 
you know, over the last 10 years, there's there have been so many incidences where we thought, surely this is the moment of change. And then it's like we just slipped right back into something. So, so I can't say definitively, but what I do know is that there's never been a moment in time where people are paying attention to the things that are happening in our cultural, political landscape. That I know for sure. I have to agree. I think that um, you know more and more people are are also just admitting that they don't know what they don't know and are willing to learn. Uh, you know, I had never, ever, I didn't know anything about Josiah Henson in my history books when I went to school. Uh, you know, I didn't know about Africville in, um, in, in Halifax. You know, That's these right. are all things that we need to learn and we need to understand. So um, I'm glad that there's uh, more and more attention being put on this. If people want to read this book, uh, find out more about you, connect, about, connect with you, where can they find you? Yeah, so they could look up uh, Coach House Books. Um, they could also look up drsherylthompson.com. That's my personal website. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Cheryl T. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Protecting our identities online has become a full-time job in recent years with an explosion of social media apps and the request for scads of personal information for even the most minor inquiry. Thankfully, when it comes to figuring out how to protect myself online and those that submit personal information to me, I know Cat Code, which means you know Cat Code. Cat is the founder of Binary Tattoo with a mission to help safeguard your data and protect your digital identity. Backed by two decades of experience in mobile development and software architecture, as well as a certification in data privacy law, Cat helps individuals and corporations better understand cybersecurity and data privacy. Welcome back to the show, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to talk about de-identification because I saw a little video you posted and I went, what? <laughs> and so if I'm doing that, I know a lot of other people will too. So let's first define what de-identification is. Awesome. All right. Well, when your information is collected on the internet, it's divided into different pieces. So there's information that's about you is considered personal information. And that could be anything about you. That could be your age, that could be your gender, that could be your address. And then there's personally identifiable information. And personally identifiable information is you as an individual and it isolates you. So people are often thinking unique identifiers like emails or social insurance numbers. But if you actually combine some personal information, you might end up with personally identifiable information. So if you were to say um, females who lived in my house, there are several of them. But if you say females who lived in my house who are over 30, that's just me. So that has suddenly become two pieces of information that identifies a specific individual. Okay. And then the danger in that becomes what? So when that identifiable information is pinpointed to you, that means that people can then put other thoughts together. So a great example is let's say you wear a Fitbit and that Fitbit decides to de-identify their information. So they're gonna pull out your name and your address and all that stuff. And they're just gonna trace your walking or running route every morning. That's it, just your walking or running route. You get that information, you can't really tell who it is. Then Google has gone and purchased Fitbit. 
Google knows your name, knows where you live, knows all sorts of information. Because every time you go on Google Maps, you're like, here's my home and I need to get somewhere else, right? So now Google can map all of this personally identifiable information to Fitbit's running routes. And now with that, they have identified the running route information. So Fitbit had attempted to de-identify it or pull that identifying information out. And Google has now put it all back together. So the more of this identifying information we're putting on the internet, the bigger a picture it can paint of who we are. Right. And so this is really, I mean, I understand people listening are saying, okay, but what can I do about it? So, but really the responsibility for this is the people who collect the data. Uh, so like, for example, I might collect data when I, when I ask people to sign up for a newsletter or something, or, you know, so how do people make sure that they're being responsible with the data they're collecting? I mean, I don't want to identify any of my listeners uh, to people unknowingly. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you are a company or an entity that collects information, it is your responsibility to ensure that you are only collecting personal information that is actually required for what you do. So a lot of people require extra information. A great example is my kids signed up for a science fair and it had gender in it. And I'm sure they're trying to statistically measure boys versus girls or non-identified gender in the science fair. However, what they've done is added an extra piece of personal information that isn't required for that. So if you're collecting that kind of information from individuals, that piece should be optional. You should be able to say, hey, you know what? You're signing up for my service. I require your name and your email address. If you want to give me your age range or uh, email addresses and things like that, or whatever else extra information you have, then that is optional. But the required information is only, again, for the use of your service and product and not nice to have extra information just because you want it. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think a lot of businesses really need to look at this. You know, I think about it a lot. I go on something online and I sign in and they're asking for what my income is, my range, and you know, where I live, my, my firstborn's favorite food, you know, I'm being silly, but you know, they do ask for a lot of information that's not relevant. And so I would guess now that the flip side of this is it's on the consumer to push back on that. Absolutely. So a great example, Spotify, lots of people use Spotify. Um, and in Spotify's registration, it specifically, again, asks for gender and birth date. And so something that Spotify could have done is said birth range. You know, it could have said, are you born between 75 and 80 rather than a specific birth date? Then they would have taken this identifiable information of date of birth and made it more abstract. Uh, and then that would have been safer for the individual. And so they're arguing that they're doing it because they can better show you what kind of music you want, right? Like all women born between 75 and 80 like this music. I get that. But algorithmically, they could still do that without that information. And that information for their registration isn't optional. It's required information. So they're in the States. They don't fall under some of these regulations that ensure that you're limiting what you take from people. And like you just said, so it's buyer beware. If you're signing up to one of these services and it's requiring that you have this information, you might want to think twice. Is it worth me adding to the internet? Is it worth me adding all my personal data to this bigger sphere of everything in order to get this service? And if the answer is yes, then use it. But if the answer is no, then think twice or look for a different option. Okay. As always, Kat, you are a wealth of knowledge. If people want to connect with you and find out more, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at binarytattoo.com um, or on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Okay, excellent. Kat, thank you so much. Thank you. Stick around. 
More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. What are lies, what is times, what is everything, and everything is nothing without you. Valentine's Day is here yet again, and for those of us living this single life, it's tempting to grab a tub of Ben and Jerry's and try to lose yourself binge-watching TV until it's all over. My next guest says you deserve better. Natalia Juarez is a Toronto-based breakup coach and dating strategist. After going through a broken engagement in 2010, she became obsessed with reimagining heartbreak as an opportunity for transformation. Today, she helps men and women through the entire spectrum of breakups or divorce, helping them recover, initiate a separation, win an ex back, and find new love. Welcome to the show, Natalia. Thank you so much for having me. So what inspired you, sir? What was the catalyst to start Lavistics? Well, 10 years ago, um, exactly, I, I went through a big broken engagement and it was just, it was so, I mean, on top of going through a heartbreak, just trying to find the resources that you need to kind of start, start over was just so difficult. And I was turning 30 at the time, um, you know, and I did the things that, you know, you know to do. Like I went to my friends, got a therapist. But it just, it wasn't enough. So when I started finding resources that helped, I thought I have to help people. So what were some, like, what were some of the resources that you found? Well, the do's and don'ts of, of recovery. Um, and so, cause so often like love is not enough. You need like just understanding what it takes to have a long-term relationship can really help you to assess whether or not um, uh, getting back together is even, even a healthy possibility. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the early days of, of my, uh, my separation, I, um, I felt like I was sort of in this weird space floating, like thing, everything seems surreal. And I think that's when you really need that, those tools to help you get through those first few days so that you don't slide back, yes. you know, to, to the things that, that caused hurt. Right. Yeah. And just understanding the recovery process, which I believe is an experience of grief. Like you're going to feel all of the things, the anger, the sadness, a lot of bargaining, denial, but, you know, but then eventually if you do the work in terms of, of processing the pain, being good to yourself, giving it time, eventually you reach acceptance. Okay. So you, you encourage people then to take ownership of their love and their dating life. So how do you help them do that? Okay. Well, <laughs> there's so much out there that, you know, it'll happen when it happens, happens. It's kind of very whimsical, but that after I turned 30, I thought that's not the approach I want to take. So what, what can I do? What's within my realm? And so I started reading books, working with coaches, and I started seeing that there was actually a lot more to relationships and strategy to kind of get better results in the area of your relationships. Sometimes right. we're not drawn to what's good for us. And, you know, you mentioned there, you know, after 30, you know, there, 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 there does tend to be these um, milestones in our life. You know, it's a lot easier to meet somebody when you're in school or you're younger. And then as you get older, it gets hard. And I think a lot of women, you know, I, you know, I'm over 50. I think a lot of women would say it's, you know, I give up. I'm too old. What would you say to that? Absolutely not. We are wired for love. And I do think that there are unique challenges over 30 and over 40 and over 50, but like people love love and we're, you know, as Esther Pearl says, we're living longer, we have more opportunities. So if, if you just haven't had great results, I think just getting more engaged in this area of your life to feel more empowered. 
So dating though is difficult. I mean, you know, um, I came out of a 20 year marriage. Dating was weird at first, right? Uh, yeah, because you're out of practice. So do you help people uh, with, with things they can do for, the, for dating again? Yes. Yes. Cause that, that, I mean, that's another step in recovery. First you heal your heart, you know, and then you kind of regroup and then you begin getting back out there and the same way that dating is a skill. So is breaking up. Um, but one of the biggest things around dating and like, you know, when you say out of practice, some people never had any practice. They just kind of hung out and ended up in a relationship. So it's just so different to do it in a more proactive, intentional way in your, in your later years. Um, but then you know yourself so much better so you can have better quality relationships relationships actually. Yeah, there's a quiet confidence that sort of comes as you as you age as well, which is serves you well if you're listening to it. Uh, so dating though in a pandemic era, it's all changed, right? So how do we connect with people right now? Okay. Especially for those of us that are living in cold climates, like it is hard. So I, I've been encouraging people to just do the best that you can and that regrouping. So that comes spring and summer hopefully as things begin to open up, you know, we, we're able to do more than just walks. And, you know, like that includes things like this Valentine's Day, like ev everything is, is adapted to the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything has to be socially distanced. Uh, and so are, are you finding that people are finding connections uh, through the screen, you know, uh, dates by via internet? Yes. It, it's what we have to work with. Um, so, courtship is always evolving like our our drive for connection like that's not changing so but what people what's happening right now is we're all still learning how to kind of pivot and navigate you know virtual dating and and i do understand there are so many challenges but at the same time you know you save a lot of time and yeah also like just from the comfort of your own home so i find people are more willing to meet people that they may not have wanted to meet in person Right. And that, and, you know, true, true relationships can be built that way. If people want to connect with you though, um, how can they do that if they want to, you know, get some coaching and get sort of back into the love game as it were? So absolutely my website, lavistics.com, or I really like Instagram. So people can kind of find me there. Um, recently, I've just, for Valentine's Day, I just had created a 31 ways to celebrate Valentine's Day, whether you're in a relationship, single or heartbroken, just doing those like little things um, to just make it extra special. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this helps people who are listening and looking for love. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.